0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of One Vision. Today, Brad and Arun and myself are joined back together. It's been a very different week within the United States. We have witnessed the tragedy of George Floyd. We have witnessed the social unrest that happened thereafter because of the injustices. And we have also witnessed how our industry have responded and so today we want to spend the next 25 minutes to talk about what's going on, to reflect upon what we can do better. So first, let's start with the VC response. We've seen Andreessen and Horowitz announcing 2.2 million dollars for the effort. We've seen South Bank announcing 100 million dollars. We've seen 10 million coming from Goldman Sachs. But I would argue, though, if you take that against everything that they have invested so far is a drop in the bucket. And I would also argue that those people, the talent, the underrepresented founders have always been there. Why does it take tragedy after tragedy for the industry to wake up?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, it's it's been a couple of really sad uh, weeks. Um, and I mean, it's just when we think we are starting to recover from COVID. Uh, this this hits us. Uh, it's, it's not just in, in the U.S., Theo, by the way. I mean, I'm seeing quite a lot of reaction in the U.K. as well. Um, I see a lot of black founders, actually a couple of them whom I know quite well through, through my um, Green Shores uh, conversations. Um, they have spoken out as well. They have spoken out about their experiences fundraising, running their business, and just being part of the society. Uh, I haven't lived in the U.S. Um, so I'm I'm not sure how much of racism you face on a regular basis, or people there face on a regular basis. But it's it's quiet business as usual in the UK in some some forums. Um, I have faced that personally. Um, I've uh, I've faced that in, in the society uh, and in, in, in the professional context multiple times. Um, and and it is it is it is sad. Coming back to the venture point, um, I think it's it's a drop in the ocean. It's it's just these these funds personally, I think they are just posturing. Softbank, uh, hundred billion fund. Uh, what percentage of that went to black Americans, right? So we all know the numbers. Um and, and so 100 million feels like it's just uh, uh a knee-jerk reaction. Um, and and it's badly timed, even if their intentions were actually good, it's badly timed. Um, I think that's, that's, that's what I have to say on that particular, uh, point on Anderson Horowitz Horowitz, I think, um, uh, they launched a fund, I think it's a $15 million fund if I'm right, uh, two years back in 2018, but the LPs or the, or the, or the monies came from, um, again, African-American, not African-American, black actors, Kevin Durant and, uh, Will Smith actually, uh, funded the fund itself. So... Uh, it's it's almost like if you have to fund black people, the, the monies have to come from black uh, successful black people. It's not it, that 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 itself feels wrong to me. Uh,
0: yeah,
1: so that, that's, that's 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 my thought on this.
0: But exactly, that's my point, right? So last month in in April, actually end of April, Andreessen and Horowitz announced a crypto fund, five hundred and fifteen million dollars. Right? Five, yeah. fifteen million on crypto. And that's not even the first crypto fund. That's the second one. And, and, and to your point, why is it always a minority, uh, funder funding minority founders? This is not a niche. Being black is not a niche. Being Asian is not a niche. Ethnicity is not a niche. You can't possibly say, well, you know, we're only going to fund our kind of people. And the rest doesn't matter. That makes no sense to me. You're writing off a large part of the population.
2: But I don't. I don't know what what it, what it is um, that that you know the the murder of George Floyd by a police officer has to kick this country's um, navel gazing into gear. Um, when when you're a white VC and something like this happens and you get your partners together and you decide, oh, we're going to throw a couple billion at this and we're going to like release a press release on TechCrunch. Um, or we've got $100 billion, much of which was wasted in companies like we work, and we're just going to put a drop, like Arun uh, said, a drop in the ocean to, to somehow say that we're going to have impact too. Um, it, I, I don't think that it's it's something that is dishonest per se on, on behalf of, of these um, venture teams but i think that they really need to look at themselves and they need to look at their processes one of the most interesting things of the last couple of days are people calling them out directly and then um, the partners of some of these firms sort of having a back and forth on places like twitter and just watching the dialogue and watching the excuses And watching them not respond when they have questions of not just what percentage of Black founders are you funding, but what percentage of your partners, what percentage of your, you know, sort of associate partners and the folks inside your teams are anything but white. You know, and we could go down the list, you know, of any other, you know, sort of minority or any other gender. Because that's the problem with most of venture is that it's far too white and far too male. And it's far too concentrated in certain areas. And so to Rune's point, it shouldn't take a basketball player and an actor um, that are African-American to invest in these type of companies. It's absolutely ridiculous and inherently wrong. It's part of the problem of why these events happen. They, they happen in the United States all the time. It's not just you know, an event where it's one bad cop That's not it. It's systematic racism throughout our structures of society.
0: So speaking to that, um, I think the other thing that we've seen also before witnessing the events of the last two weeks is COVID, COVID COVID-19. It has a disproportionate effect on Black families. And there has been numerous articles being written about it. And what I've been appalled to see is every time when we talk about it, we say, you know, um, a lot of the black families, they are negatively impacted because they are also the ones who are quote unquote essential workers who have to decide between going out to work so they can put money and food on the table versus risking their health. They are the ones that are living in neighborhoods that don't have access to good health care. They are the ones who cannot afford to go see a doctor. They're also the ones that get impacted the most by employment. And I've seen again and again and again, every time when we raise things like that, I always get pushback. I get pushback from people who are not ecosystem that says, well, but from a from a heredity perspective, they're also more prone to disease. So it's not because they're systematically being discriminated against. Or I would hear people just say, well, you know, they are, they are not faring as well economically because they don't know how to manage their money. But the numbers are there. The numbers are there that shows that Black people make up a larger share of the deaths. The numbers are there that say a larger share of Black Americans don't have access to health insurance. The numbers are there that they are living in poverty, much more so than the rest of us. So, and it brings me to something else that we saw this week, that we saw an article shared by our friend Spiro that talked about overdraft fees in banks that talks about how much many financial institutions are making out of, of the low-income people. What can we do to change that narrative? How can we actually be more conscious, not just saying, oh, you know, because of current events, we are going to allow you to defer your payment for three months. How can we actually serve people better?
2: You know, one of the things about the industry and in fees um, are that they hit, you know, not just racially, but just systematically. Again, sort of lower-income people that have fewer funds, and and when we look at fees um, for disproportionately sort of hitting uh, certain populations, and banks aren't doing anything about it to alleviate that, and they're not doing anything about it to improve the income side of the balance sheet for consumers, you just have to wonder, you know, where the heart of the industry really is, and. You know, again, I think banks and, and bank executives don't sit there and think about sort of this population of, you know, the, the 80 plus percent of people that don't have um, significant funds because it's it's inherently different when you are in a room with these executives and you talk about sort of the, the way that they're managing their balance sheet for a $3 trillion bank like Chase, say and the type of decisions that a product manager makes about fee schedules. Um, even when you're at a smaller bank, you know, say you're at a billion dollar bank in the US, and there's plenty of those, um, the conversation around things like fees tend to be, hey, you know, we need a certain portion of income from these type of, of programs or this type of account. And it rarely is anything like, well, who are the people paying the fees? And is there any, you know, sort of disproportionate um, bias in the way that we assess these fees? All they care about is fee income in most of these places, and that's, that's a challenge. And, you know, if we don't put two and two together and see, you know, what's happening on the streets on a day-to-day basis, not just these things that cause protests, we, we, we don't make this industry better. So this is, this is what we need to challenge each other when we're in these rooms making these decisions to ask, is there anything we can do to understand who's impacted the most? And how could we alleviate that in order to ensure that we're improving the financial lives of all people? And there's just not enough of that conversation happening today.
1: Should we nationalize banks? <laughs> I don't know. Um uh, I, I I had this conceptual conversation with uh literally uh two three days back with one of my university friends and we were talking about public sector versus private sector and um how how these people on the on the bottom of the, at the bottom of the pyramid can be served. Um see as as banks uh, who are uh, listed in a in a I mean or who are part of capital markets they are they have, they're conflicted in, in serving the, bo- the bottom of the pyramid, right? They have to show certain risks to, to their shareholders. And you, you, I, I don't think it's practical from a business viability perspective to expect them to be too ben, uh, benevolent to um, the people, at the, uh, people who uh, are, are uh, incapable of paying those fees. Uh, but it also means that there might be a there might be have to be a uh, balance that the regulators and central banks strike, in my opinion, where they kind of have certain types of outlets serving these sort you of know, subprime or whatever the, the tag you have to 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 highlight these people who struggle to pay these kind of or struggle to use these products effectively um and the the challenge um i've had i mean this, this is again uh, going back to the microfinance industry for instance in india we i had I had this conversation again with a few, few friends we've had this for several um uh, several several times the microfinance industry in india charges i think well over 20 25% to the to the farmer there um and the the challenge was Isn't that ridiculous uh, to charge them that kind of interest rates? But if you think about it, if the farmer didn't have that option, they would be going to local lenders who charge them six, seven, eight times that kind of money, uh, that kind of interest. So I think perhaps put things into perspective, it's good for the farmer. It's perhaps even good for the capital markets or the participant in capital markets to charge that money Um, And then perhaps we need to let that model evolve. But if you think that it's not working, then it has to be more of a public-private sector partnership coming together to solve this problem is what I would think. And rates um, for loans and these
2: type of things are discriminatory. And while we have laws against these things, at the end of the day, the larger the bank, the more these individuals are simply data points. And to Arun's point earlier about capital markets and the way the banks think about the structure of not just their income, but their balance sheets, they're more concerned about their larger balance sheets and how they're going to trade uh, and how they're going to make money on multiple margins. And it's so complex and it's so complicated. And at at one point, you know, that type of business was disassociated with consumer banking and I think it really needs to be again. We need to go back to you know Glass Steagall, um, pre-Glass Steagall, you know, ten year ago, um, type of restrictions on what people can do with those type of balance sheets. The issue here that we get back to about what's happening in the industry and how we should react to it and how venture should look at it is is about how we are helping people and how we are hurting people. And so you know, I would just ask you you to think about what it is that that we can do to encourage people to look beyond themselves, who they look like, what they are, what they know, and to assess their programs and assess who they're hiring and assess who they're investing in. And, and really, you know, it's, it's not just moments of reflection. It's not just when, when you know, we have tanks in the street or whatever the heck is going on in some of these places. It's every single day. And, and from the, the, the moment that, you know, I, I was at a small credit union in downtown Oakland and experienced what it was like to have economic inequality staring at me in the face every single day to the point where, again, you're sitting in a room of executives and you're trying to get the point across about some services that would help more people. And they just like look at you like, you know, you're from Mars. These are the conversations that need to happen every day. And this is, this is what is wrong with moments, is that there shouldn't be moments. It should be every single day.
0: We would like to give a mention to our creative partner, Tremendousness. Tremendousness is a creative agency that uses visual thinking information design, and storytelling to help organizations explore and innovations, products, and processes. Learn more at www.tremendo.us. I agree. I actually got someone who commented on the overdraft issue. He's had I don't see why there's a problem because these people are taking money that don't belong to them. They are overdrafting, quote end quote, and so they should be paying the money. They should be paying the fees, and I think therein it lies the problem. And I think it has to do with people, and and I myself have raised my hand as much as I would say, you know, me as an Asian living in the United States. Uh, facing, you know, all kinds of challenges, racism, especially lately with COVID. I don't know how bad it is because I don't, and I have never lived through the bad of the bad, right? Like I'll quote an example from an old colleague of mine. He said he would regularly get pulled over by cops. He's from Jamaica and he lives in Southeast D.C., and when he told me that two years ago, I'm like, I, I don't understand why, why would people pull you over? Right. And, and he said, because I'm black. It's on a regular basis, cops will pull him over and ask him where he comes from, where he's going, where he lives, what his business was there. And, and that's wrong. And the fact that our industry, people in our industry will react to it and said, well, you know, they should get charged because that's how the fees are structured, because that's how things are structured. Or another bank that last year came out with an alternative of payday lending that instead of charging people 400%, they're charging them, I can't remember, like 60 or 70% interest. And they said, well, because this is better than the 400 that payday lenders are charging. But wait a minute. 60%. It's 60%. The fact that it would come out from the executive's mouth and say, and comparing themselves to people that are payday lenders, therein it lies part of the problem.
1: Uh, yeah, agreed. agree. Uh, going back to the pro- point of um, uh, African-American families being hit worse by the COVID crisis in the U.S., I just have to chip in with a couple of points there. It's, it's also a demography challenge that uh, that some of our societies are facing today, right? Because especially with this pandemic. Um, and, and and again, going back to my India example, um, with the COVID crisis, I think India has just crossed 200,000 victims and about a third of that uh, are from the city of Mumbai. Um, and we can all blame the city for not taking the right measures and all that. And, and I'm sharing the amount of efforts the officials are taking to keep things under check. But just imagine a household there. Uh, there are certain communities that, that have like little apartments where uh, off of a few, a couple of hundred square feet, about 10 to 15 people live there. And when you have 15 people living, they don't, they don't live there. They just come to that apartment to sleep. They sleep. They have a seven hour, um what do you call it, shift to sleep. And then they're woken up by the next guy who comes there to sleep. And then the next guy comes in, and that's how they live in that apartment. And then the rest of the day, they go out, work. And when you're living in that kind of a mode, it's very hard for a government to get to that level of grassroots and make sure their welfare is taken care of in a pandemic that is as cruel as what they're going through at the moment. So as much as we, we, we actually say that there could be more that could be done from a financial support perspective, from a... From uh, being more humane and all these kind of things. I think at this point that there needs to be, I mean, most governments I, I, have, I have come across, the mm, European governments, I mean, Germany is doing amazingly well, uh, New Zealand, and, and some of the news that's coming from that part of the world is just mind blowing. Um, uh, India has been, I know, I know the kind of efforts that's been, the governance, the, the efficacy of the governance is, is just just mind blowingly awesome for me. At, and and so i think we should probably bring some positive note to that as well uh there is there is definitely a lot we could do better um to that community not just in uh for to the african american communities in the us across the world we we are going to see that uh people in that social bracket are going to be the worst hit out of this pandemic um uh, my heart go to them but i think there is only so much as, as as governments can get involved in in helping them out i think
0: I think it needs to be a private public partnership. Right. It's not something that government alone can do. It's also not private sector alone can do. Um, it needs to be both and it needs to be a sustained effort. It cannot just be a one-off knee jerk that said, Oh, wait a minute. This is the flavor of the week. And that's what we're going to focus on. And before we close, I want to, I want to talk about something else that happened last weekend as well. MIT just selected as first Black woman student body president. It took 159 years, but they made it. The problem I have with that was not only it took that long, but also how it was being portrayed, how it was reported. The news article quote, unquote, MIT elects first Black women student body president in its 159-year history and has a picture. But the picture has no name. The title of the article has no name. The tweet that it posted also has no name. And she has a name. Her name is Danielle Geithers. And we should celebrate the fact that not only MIT finally made history. But there's also this person behind it. It's her accomplishment. Her identity is not just the fact that she's a woman and she's black. Her name, her heritage, what she does, what she represents as a person also should be part of her identity. And this is not the first time, right? We've always gone through, we've seen Financial Times having an article that talks about a particular bank having a first female executive, no name. Same with Nikhil. We have seen another one that talked about um, Japanese Central Bank. Again, an amazing woman with amazing accomplishment. No name other than the fact that she's a woman. Is it because media wants to do it because it's a good click? Or is it our inherent bias? I, I don't know. I would say, though, is. The article has has garnered a lot of attention. 210,000 views so far. It's kind of crazy, but we need to do better. We can do better.
2: Um, I think that this week has proven that every media outlet has its I um, just bias inherently to its process, whether editorial or not, and what kind of type of content, what type of headline. Um, the the challenge, I think. In, in thinking that there's no bias in not having someone's name in the headline um, is that when, when it's a white executive, they almost always name their name. When it's a man, they almost always name their name. And it's not like these people are necessarily household names. Um, when you scan almost any paper, you don't know these people. And yet they will acknowledge, um, individuals more and, you know, imagine the, the paper saying, hey, you know, white man becomes executive of big bank or white man, you know, becomes the 1500th in a row uh, to be the central banker or the president or the whatever. Um, not just this nation, but we've had opportunities again and again to put women and put people of color and put more diverse executives uh, in place of power. That's the problem with everything that is happening that, you know, again, this is a microcosm. This this moment in history is just that. The systematic problems that are underneath this and the differences in the way that we look at the economy, we look at services in general, is so inherently biased. And I've learned so much from the two of you based on who we've had on this program over the last year and a half or more, and who we meet and talk to all the time. And I have to check my own bias, and we have more to do, not just in banking, not just in venture capital, but in every single conversation that we have. And we just simply need to look at ourselves, think about what we do, And have those difficult conversations, because that's the only way you change. them.
0: I'll add to it is we need to stop being colorblind. And I myself have gone through those periods as well. I remember when um, a couple of years ago, when, when I started coming across, things like Black Lives Matter. My first reaction was, why is it Black Lives Matter? Why isn't it All Lives Matter? Me as a minority, me as a woman, I matter too, right? But then something clicked because it's not about me. It's not about Asians. It's about systematically we have a demographic that has gone through a lot of hardship, that has been suppressed, that has been discriminated against and this is this is to shine light on them this is for us and all of us who are privileged in one way or another to step up and raise our voices so this moment is for them and it needs to be more than a moment so with that thank you so much for listening in this week to another episode of one vision